Прославил труд страну свою и время, В родной простор известных дорог. This is John DeFalb at John Sandow's bookshop in Chelsea, London. I'm joined today by the historian Anna Reid. Besides writing the first major history of the Ukraine, Borderland, about 25 years ago, Anna has also written the finest account of the siege of Leningrad, as well as The Shaman's Coat, a native history of Siberia. Her recent book, A Nasty Little War, spans these diverse theatres and adds new ones, The Caucasus, The Russian Arctic. It is a remarkable book for many reasons, for the way in which it addresses an immense range of activities, both geographical and operational, and makes a coherent narrative of them, for its terse, often laconic and witty voice, which makes it possible to read about the most hideous things, and for its success in bringing to general attention an, an area of history that has been widely ignored except by specialists or is the stuff of fantasy. So, welcome, Anna. Thank you very much for having me. Your book's subtitle is The West's Fight to Reverse the Russian Revolution. So what was going on? What was this about? The book's about the intervention, what's known as the intervention, which was a two-year effort by the Allies, so France, Britain, America and Japan, to overthrow the new Bolshevik regime in Russia. It probably kicked off in August of 1918 when Britain sent troops to Archangel, made a opposed landing in Archangel, overthrew the Soviet there, and the Americans landed troops in Vladivostok on the Pacific. So we've already got two fronts opening up of staggering geographical diversity, nominally in the same war. Yes, one, one, one in the Arctic, one in the Pacific, you know, thousands of miles apart. And it, the, the, the effort continued until 1920, the, the major, by which time Britain was the only one of the Allies left, left involved. America and France had pulled out earlier. And our very last troops leave in, in summer of 1920 from Crimea, where Wrangel, the sort of last stand Russian white general, um, is is the only is the only one left the only one of the white russian armies left and in addition to that um black sea front there's or sea of azov really um there's the ukraine as well so we've got broadly speaking four fronts is that right um five so you've got the arctic siberia you've got southern russia and ukraine you've got the Caspian, and you've got the Baltics as well, where we're supporting okay. the, the Balts, the Estonians and the Latvians. So it's not really a nasty little war from the point in geographically. The, the, the little I take to be, from reading the book, I take to be a reflection of, in particular, British political attitude, the, the sense of it being something off stage. It's not the main theatre of activity. It's it's a the, the a nasty little war is a quote from a young he was a young airman down on the Caspian, um he was flying planes on and off uh, sort of cargo ships which then turned into very basic sort of aircraft carriers you know the first sort of generation of aircraft carriers and he was stationed in a little port north of of Baku and having a horrible time with these irregulars storming around. He said, you were never quite sure if they were part of a real army or if they were just sort of hooligans. And they sort of were busy torturing prisoners and sort of leaving the bodies on the on the dockside. And his Russian crews for his his aircraft his aircraft carriers kept sabotaging their ships and so on. And he he's interviewed late in life and he says it was a really nasty, dirty little war. And that was the very much the attitude of most participants, at least in retrospect. But it was a, in in terms of geography, it was a vast war. Um, in geography, it was absolutely enormous. Yes, and it was basically, uh, a, a, you know, it was unconnected. They were politically connected, obviously, but militarily speaking, they were unconnected campaigns, and they never managed to join up these fronts. There were dreams that 
uh, the troops in the north would be able to join up with white forces in Siberia that you know then cross the Urals and come over into European Russia, but none, none of that happened. And what was the origin of it? I and mean, how how did it come to be? What on earth were these Allied troops doing in these remote places? The origin of it was the First World War. So when the Bolsheviks very unexpectedly took power in November of 1917. They almost immediately started peace talks with Germany. Obviously, you know, the war is still ongoing. The the Allies, their focus is entirely on beating Germany. They don't really care who's in power in Russia as long as the regime, you know, dedicates itself to continuing the fight with Germany and rebuilds the Eastern Front, which was already in a sort of state of collapse by then, you know, mass desertions by the Russian army. So when the Bolsheviks declare power, they've only got power in Petersburg and Moscow. And lots of other governments declare themselves all around the periphery of the old Tsarist, the now collapsed Tsarist empire. And, and there are very- what authority do they have? Well, nothing. They're self-declared. You know, okay. some of them, they get together little scratch militias. Um, they're of every political hue from, you know, out-and-out monarchists to other rival types of revolutionary. And we don't care. We back them all, basically, initially, because uh, we don't care who takes power as long as it's somebody who's who going to fight the Germans. Them. Exactly. And, of course, at that stage, the, the, everybody, including Russians, everybody expects the Bolsheviks to last five minutes. You know, It seems an absurdity they've come to power at all. They're practically unknown. They're a tiny group. They've been sort of these radical, you know, exiled pamphleteers for years, got no political experience. And you know, everybody expects they're going to be swept away somehow or other in you know months, if not weeks. Of course, that doesn't happen. And you know, two, you know, they Trotsky, um, who turns out to be this sort of military leader of sort of near genius, builds up the Red Army uh steadily, uh, particularly in sort of 1919. So by 1919, it's a proper force. And come 1920, the Allied troops, together with their white Russian uh partners, are fleeing various ports around the edge of the old empire, you know, flee, disappearing back onto their troop ships and waving goodbye to crowds of frantic refugees on the quaysides. And um, at a certain point, the, the gear shifts, though, from being something to do with, uh, fundamentally to do with Germany and keeping German troops engaged on the Eastern Front to uh, the, when, when, the that war, the First World War finishes, the Allies have got these troops all around Russia, suddenly not involved in the First War. So, and then what is the justification for them? Well, at that point, the justification changes into an ideological one. So we're already, already committed. We've made commitments to these various anti-Bolshevik governments. And... So there's a sort of, there's the, you know, it's got its own momentum there. We're here because we're here. And it's, you know, it's felt that it would be a blow to British prestige just to pull out straight away and leave them all in the lurch. And there's also genuine fear at that stage of the revolution spreading West. Because if you remember, 1919 was a year of enormous social unrest everywhere, really, you know, France, Britain and America, massive strikes, riots, uh, soldiers in their barracks who haven't been demobilised yet, really sort of taking affairs into their own hands and um, sort of, you know, mobbing the officers' billets, um, you know, refusing orders, all that kind of thing. And the right puts this down to, to Bolshevik influence, to sort of Bolshevik plotting. And it's all coming from Russia, of course. Uh, so there's there's some... Um, you know the right. The right wants to see Bolshevism strangled in its cradle. The Western left, on the other hand, still thinks of this as a you know bright new dawn, and you get a hands off Russia movement as well being born and massive rallies in the Albert Hall. It pulls in lots of intelligentsia figures, um, and then the old the suffragettes and Forster and so on um, all join it. And so you've got it becomes the intervention after the war with Germany is over after the armistice is becomes a big political issue domestically for, for all, the, all the participants as well. 
But the participants themselves, or the allied participants, are what, what sort of forces are there? You describe that they're, you almost make it sound as though they're all one-legged, shell-shocked trauma victims who have been sent there, uh, really pretty unfit for any purpose. So that's partially true of the British troops, in that they'd come from the Western Front. They were battle-hardened, they're experienced, but a lot of them were what were known as Category B men. So they were convalescent or they'd suffered gassing or they were otherwise unfit um, and, you know, officially rated only fit for garrison duties. However, in the north, up in Murmansk and Archangel, the bulk of the troops are actually American and they are essentially civilians. They've been called up. Um, they mostly came from the Midwest, from Michigan. It was reckoned that they'd be used to the cold, but actually they were mostly city boys. They were sort of clerks and mechanics in the, the, the car factories of Detroit. And they they are green. They're completely inexperienced. This is the first time they've been abroad, usually, let alone um, seen any action. And But they're fit. They're physically fit. And Woodrow Wilson, he had agreed with Lloyd George that the American troops would come under British command. So you've got this very uncomfortable situation developing, as you can imagine, where the Brits are on what the Americans called swivel chair duties in the rear, up in the you know, reasonably comfortable towns, whereas the, the, the Americans are sent down the river, rivers, down the railway, to actually fight in these sort of Arctic conditions in the wilderness or in and out of these little villages. And so resentment quickly builds up. And that's one of the reasons the operation in the Arctic is wound up rather quickly. They're, they're, the American troops pull out in the spring of 1919 and the British troops in the summer. And, and it's, for, it's for fear of, of, of mutinies. I mean, better terms, soldiers strikes. I mean, they're not scragging their officers. They're simply refusing orders. And these mutinies spread amongst that there's a minor one amongst the American troops but there are lots of them amongst the, the whole series of them amongst the British troops of people simply they're told to attack a village they simply refuse to do so or they're told to you know leave their barracks and um you know go to go to the station ready to be entrained from the for the front and they simply refuse to do so and then this this is with the French and the British particularly and Ironside who's the British commander in charge there he knows this is coming the minute the armistice news of the armistice gets through and you see in his diary he writes down you know, so the war's over, but it's not over for us. You know, I wonder what effect it will have on the men out here when they hear about it. And they do actually manage to keep news of the armistice from the troops on the actual river and railway fronts for like a couple of months in some cases. You know, they simply, they're simply not told it's the war with Germany's over. No internet. <laughs> no internet. But the Americans also come out very well in the Far East. Um, the The man in charge graves didn't want to be involved in the intervention at all and yet there he is you're right it's in it's in siberia and the far east where the, the 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 british military mission and the much much bigger american one clash um most most sharply so you've got these two generals who have completely sort of opposing personalities and, and backgrounds and the charge of this small British military mission, just a couple of battalions, is this man called Alfred Knox, who's one of the many Anglo-Irish sort of top brass involved in the story. And he's a he's he's he spent the First World War in liaison with the Tsarist army. So he knows uh, the Russian military well. He knows the old Russian establishment well. And he totally identifies with it. And he's a right winger. And he's, he's just a, he's a conservative. He's magnificent looking. The photographs of him, he's splendid. He's got this sort of prow of a nose and this square chin and these sort of hooded eyes. You know, and all his junior officers, and he's got terrific sort of decision and presence. And most of his junior officers, and he gathers around him, you know, men of the same sort of mind, um, adore him for his charisma. The more sophisticated ones... Um, such as Gerhardy, who listeners might know from his fantastic novel of the intervention called Futility. It's a sort of novelised memoir, really. Um, you know, the more sophisticated ones make fun of him because he's so he's so narrow-minded. Um, and he is heart and soul for the intervention 
um, anti-Bolshevik, also anti-Semitic. On, on the other side, in command of the much bigger American force in Siberia, you've got William Graves, who's also a professional soldier. He's But he's the son of a Southern Baptist minister. He's a sort of earnest, spectacled figure. And he hadn't wanted to go to to Russia at all. He had been looking forward to taking up a senior command in France. You know, it was going to be the pinnacle of his career. And he's sort of given this little note at a sort of very brief um, meeting at a railway station with the Secretary of Defence saying, off you go to Siberia. And he says, um, it'll be like, it, he's given very, very, according in his memoir, at least, he's given incredibly vague instructions. And he's just told, oh, the political situation, it'll be like walking on eggs loaded with dynamite, you know, sort of <laughs> go carefully and God bless. You know? And so he, from the moment he arrives in Russia, he's, he's, he wishes he wasn't there. He thinks the whole venture is, is, is a mistake. And he basically tries to keep his troops out of the fighting as much as possible. Um, so they're basically just doing sort of peacekeeping duties along the Trans-Siberian Railway. And this absolutely infuriates Knox, who thinks that, who wants them to be sort of marching, marching west to engage the Bolsheviks. And, 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 and Graves won't do it, won't, wait, won't take his cue from Knox. And they clash over and over. You mentioned Trans-Siberian, which brings us to another crucial force, the Czech um, force, who played an integral part in it. And it's fascinating what they did. It's it's an extraordinary story um, and, and a complicated one. So to backtrack, uh, there were, during the First World War, a lot of Czechs fought with the Russian Tsarist army um, because they viewed the Austro-Hungarians as sort of colonial overlords. They wanted independence for Czechoslovakia. So there's, there are these big Czech and Slovak legions, as they were called, within the Russian army. So come the Russian Revolution and the Bolsheviks taking power and making peace with Germany and Austro-Hungary, their first thought is simply to get back home, disengage themselves, get back home and join in the creation of the new Czech state. They can't go home the short way because Germany's in the way. So what they do is they sort of commandeer trains, they get themselves arms, they commandeer trains, and they start moving east along the Trans-Siberian Railway. And they basically, they, they negotiate with the various different governments and militias in, in control of the different railway towns. Trotsky, however, starts seeing them as a threat. And in the spring of 1918, he issues an order to all the red militias, these red little mini governments along the railway saying, disarm the Czechs, um, break up these Czech regiments, incorporate them into to our to, into our new Red Army. The Czechs get wind of this; they intercept these various telegrams, and they then simply take control of the trains and start fighting their way east. Um, and to everybody's amazement, they knock over all these little red governments and all these railway towns in very short order. And by June of 1918, have control of the entire Trans-Siberian. Um, well, one one of the things that amazed me about that uh, story is how it connects up with the murder of the Tsar's family. Um, I'd always thought that why why were they murdered in this remote place or relatively secure, far inside Russia? But you describe how, in fact, it was partly a response to the proximity of the Czechs. Exactly. So they had been moved to Yekaterinburg in the Urals and they were under, which was red held, had a local red, red, red regime. And the Czech legions were approaching. They were about to take Yekaterinburg and the, at which point um, the, the, the government, the Lenin Trotsky decide they need to, they need to assassinate the Tsar, otherwise he's going to become a focus. There's a risk that he'll get freed and he'll become a, a focus for the white cause. Um, now, the white cause, the white legitimacy, the, 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 we have this idea that the about the whites as something coherent. But again, from your book, that, that there's nothing coherent about the whites 
so-called whites at all. All they are is opponents of the Reds. It's a sort of catch-all term. Uh, what it really, what it really comes to mean is the Kolchak and Denikin government. So Kolchak is an admiral. He's a Tsarist era admiral. He was one of the bright young stars of the old navy, who is put in power partly with Knox's help, with British help, in Omsk in nineteen. 19- 18 at the end of 1918 and and Denikin who is a czarist era general who's very conservative he had earlier been part of a group that tried to overthrow the provisional government which was a sort of social democrat government that held power in between the February and October revolutions and he um has his own army the volunteer army and he fights in allegiance with the Cossacks in alliance with the Cossacks down in southern Russia and Ukraine. So that's that's what's commonly known as the whites. It's these two, it's these two governments um, in Siberia and 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 the South. But in the earlier stages of the intervention, we're helping much more broad-based, much more moderate governments. Um, so up in Archangel, uh, we initially support a man called Tchaikovsky. Who's a you know he's a, he's a, he's a, he's an he's a big sort of sage like figure. He has a long white beard from the Russian the Tsarist era Russian socialist movement, and he had spent most of his life in exile. He had started a sort of a commune in Kansas at one point in his career, and it's him we put in power in Archangel to start with, and he has a he has a, a socialist government, a white some white a white naval officer up in Archangel, gathers round a cabal of right-wing officers round him, and in in with the help of Poole, of General Poole, the British um, general in command up there, they oust Tchaikovsky and send him and his ministers off to the Solovetsky Monastery, to these islands in the White Sea, which got this fantastic ancient fortified monastery on them. The the diplomatic corps, which is up in Archangel at that stage, the, the, the Western diplomatic corps is absolutely furious. They hadn't planned this at all. And they they force Poole and the, 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 the Russians to bring Tchaikovsky back and put him back in government. But Tchaikovsky thereafter is basically terrified, has lost all confidence and wants out. And he goes off again back to back to Paris and is replaced by, by a general. By a by a by you know an orthodox czarist general. So you have you have this movement from the centre, from you know a, a civilian broad based sort of centre left government in Archangel, and you have the same in Omsk, um, where a civilian government is overthrown by by Admiral Kolchak with Knox's help. And by this stage, or by the late stage, it's down to these military people, Kolchak and Denikin, and. Amongst them all, or on the peripheries, there are freebooters and warlords um, of all kinds of description. Um, I mean, the the sense of chaos that you present is absolutely extraordinary. Um, everybody, p- people in it for what they can get, um, or just to save themselves. Um, chaos, chaos everywhere. Um, then there's an extraordinary thing at the after the end of the first war, offering peace talks, which everybody rejects. So through the first half of 1918, so when it became more apparent the Bolsheviks were going to hang on to power, but the Allies were, you know, heart and soul um, involved with the war against Germany, totally focused on that. And it was at a crucial point. But through that, through those first few months of 1918, there was lots of debate um, between the capitals about how, if and if and how to get involved in Russia. Much the much the keenest on doing something in Russia was Clemenceau of France, um, partly because France had, was most desperate for the Eastern Front to be revived. Um, since they were they were suffering much the most in the war, um, partly for economic reasons, because French small savers have put a lot of money into Russian government bonds, which you can still, which which Trotsky had repudiated. He had said we're not we're not honouring Tsarist era debts, and so these had all become totally worthless. And you can still see them for sale. These beautiful 
you know, beautifully printed things in Cyrillic sort of in the Bouquiniste, some, you know, along the Seine if you're in Paris. And so France was pushing hard, pushing London and Washington hard to send troops to Russia. Everybody realised you could, nothing could be done without America. Woodrow Wilson of America was very anti. His instincts were all against it. And in his first term, he got into trouble intervening in Mexico. I mean, he tried to stay out of the First World War for as long as he could. And sort of havering in between the two was, was Lloyd George. And what really, what really turned it was the Czech takeover of the Trans-Siberian. Firstly, because they, they took control of Vladivostok um, so that any American troops landed there would be sure of a welcome. And secondly, because the, the idea of the Czech nation itself appealed to Woodrow Wilson's sympathies. You know, it was all very much part of his sort of 14 points, you know, self-determination story. You know, the, he, the Czechs were these sort of, you know, brave little nation, one of these brave little nations of Central Europe, which he wanted to see independent. And he was, and it was at that point in in June of 1918 that he eventually conceded um, and allowed troop, American troops to be sent. Hmm. Um, but the French were the first, although they might have been the first in, they were also the first out. They were. They they sent, um, they had had a small force in Siberia um they sort of they, they had a small numbers up in the north as well part of that sort of multinational force up there um but basically the only place they took charge of um very briefly was Odessa in the second half of the winter of 1918 to 19 and then in fact the, the majority it was like 40,000 plus troops but the large majority of them were Greek or Senegalese they were Greek troops or, or colonial troops um just French officered and they pulled out together with their Russian allies in Odessa in very embarrassing disorder in April 1919. And it was a, it was a sort of hideous debacle. It was a debacle for Clemenceau. You know, it, it um, damaged him politically and it was humiliation for France. And, and, and alongside this, um, you know, chaotic withdrawal in Odessa, you also had French naval mutinies in Sebastopol. So a bunch of different allied ships are sitting in Sebastopol harbor rather sort of watching as the as the red army advances down the Crimean peninsula and the 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 french sailors actually pull down the tricolor on their ships put up the red flag and a whole bunch of them go ashore and join in um join in a Bolshevik demonstration, sort of marching up and down the quayside with red flags, and that the Greek troops um, carry on obeying orders and fire on them, and they're brought back to their ships, and the thing is quelled. But uh, at that point, it, it's obvious that the you know, that the French polit simply politically they just cannot keep 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 troops in Russia. Though you know the, the the French sailors and soldiers themselves aren't having anything of it. They want to they want to go home. And meanwhile, the whites themselves, the so-called whites, um, as a reader, I had this sense that almost regardless of the reds, the, the whites were sort of more interested in stealing and um, whatever uh, support they had from the West, um, food and arms, that... They, they're kind of semi-destitute, the whites. They they um and they take out their own insecurity and anxiety on whoever the local population happens to be, but in particular the Jews. Yes, this is the great blot on the intervention, is the way in which the British, because we're the only forces left there, um by then by the second half of 1919 we turn a blind eye to white pogroms all over all over ukraine so during the civil war the jews are scapegoated by every side so all the all the combatant armies commit pogroms against jews so the red army the white army the ukrainian national army the Pol polish army and a bunch of warlords and probably the worst offenders it's hard to tell 
are a particular warlord called Hryhoryev and the Ukrainian army. But the white armies as well commit some absolutely horrible massacres again and again. They tend to do it once as they advance through a town and then again as they retreat through it. Sometimes uh, also they're organised pogroms. Um, there's one town you described, the um, officers dealing with the uh, centre of the town and sort of lower ranks being allowed to rape and pillage on the outskirts. Yes, this is in Kiev. So different units are allotted different parts of the town. And we have we they're very well documented. They're probably the first of properly documented um sort of war crimes in history because there were lots of there were very well organized active Jewish humanitarian associations, you know, dating back to the war on the on the ground. And they sort of centered on Kiev and they they made a big effort to collect witness statements, collect documents, take photographs, you know, count bodies, identify them where possible. Lots of lots of statements from doctors and from hospitals and you know people dealing with the pogrom victims, and and all those materials were later smuggled out of Russia and ended up in archives in Berlin and New York and were properly written up. So we have we have lots and lots and lots of eyewitness statements and and though the, the idea of the actual number of victims is still pretty unclear it's somewhere between a hundred thousand and two hundred thousand and uh, how does that compare uh, with with troop losses troop losses on the allied side were quite small in the low thousands and a lot of those were um deaths due to disease or accidents uh because you know apart from in the north we were mostly supplying arms we were sort of peacekeeping or we were supplying arms and training white forces you know we were sort of had a semi-observer role um in most places the training of the white the, the, the civil war in general you know they, it didn't have any big sort of it didn't have big set piece battles you know it was small num small numbers of troops very mobile these very wavering front lines it was sort of lots lots of sort of skirmishes um and lot but uh, so the so so you know, military losses were actually relatively small in the civil war. You know the, the the but but death rates were enormous. But it was due to it was amongst civilians. It was typhus, um, and then it was it was typhus and also Spanish flu, which it was the Americans that brought to the north. Spanish flu hadn't reached Arctic Russia, and there are these they, the Americans themselves are starting to die of Spanish flu even on the troop ships over. And then you get these descriptions of you know, how they brought the Spanish flu to these little towns and, you know, funeral processions sort of, you know, going through the streets every day and the, the morgues absolutely filling up and, um, you know, appalling death rates. And this, uh, the, the, the appalling death rate of disease and so forth, but but the, the pogroms have this staggering prevalence and, and um, toll. And... The British, including perhaps above all because of it, where his position, Churchill, knowing what was going on, I've I found this all very startling. That that there's an understanding in the corridors of power in 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 Britain of what was happening and just but a, a hand washing. It, that's exactly right. You put it beautifully. So. The, the the Jews in the white Russian mind became synonymous with Bolsheviks. And in, so, and in the Western's mind as well? Uh, to, to an extent. So, of course, anti-Semitism is widespread, you know, everywhere at, at that point in history. And reading all the officers' diaries, you know, it was very, they, they tend to be sort of self-deprecating, you know, sort of fair-minded, sort of reasonable guys and that you know their diaries bounce along and you think oh he's an interesting man and then they'll come out with some witless anti-semitic jibe um just out of nowhere about jews being greasy or you know all sort of waxing fat on the war or sort of um you know nice town except far too many jews you know sort of uh, this kind of thing and we of course one knows one knows this is of the period um 
but it's you know it's it was it's still extremely jarring and a lot of a lot of them bought into the the white jew equals bolshevik slur mm. which was you know it was it was transparently untrue a lot of the bolshevik lead, leadership was jewish or had jewish heritage um but that d- did not mean of course that all jews were bolshevik uh, but it for 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 for, for, for for Russians, for white Russians, you know, it, it was an easy sort of three-word explanation for why the old system had collapsed, you know, for 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 why for why they were so unpopular, um, you know, it 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 it, it absolved them from having to actually examine the reasons, the real reasons, um, why the old why the old regime had 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 collapsed so fast. It it almost reads as if. It... It gave them, or they interpreted it as a license to kill. Absolutely, yes, yes, and the and the looting, of course, substituted for soldiers' wages. So, mm. you know, there there's the pogroms. They tend to involve they involve a white troop train rolling into town. Um, the local Jewish population will send a deputation um, with an offer of money um, and. Sort of professions of loyalty to Denikin and so on. Um, the 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 troop train commander will take the money. Um, that evening, looting will start to break out. Shops and houses will start to be broken into. And over the next sort of two three days, that descends into wholesale massacres with people being pulled out of their houses, murdered on the streets, gang rapes in public on the streets. And towards the end of it, maybe the local priest will go and. Um, negotiate with the train commander and he'll he'll pull out perhaps leaving leaving behind a small garrison and you go you go back from one of what they call an active pogrom to a quiet pogrom which just means more occasional sort of low-level violence and these pogroms waxed and waned throughout um eastern ukraine uh particularly the second you know the white pogroms are the, through the second half of 1919 central and eastern ukraine and they the worst of them happen in towns where the where the british troops aren't you know they don't they don't happen in the towns where the military missions have their headquarters but that's not always true and it's perfectly obvious to the brits what's happening because the the larger places are full of jewish refugees are full of people who've fled the shtetlm where the worst of the violence is happening and of course, there are the Jewish organisations on the ground who are busy collecting all this information and more than you know, writing up petitions and sending them to London and everything else. We we turn a blind eye on the ground, um, and in London, these petitions are basically just waved off. Um, the reply is always something like, "Oh, this is exaggerated." Um, or these are just sort of one-off excesses. That's the euphemism of the time. You know, the word sort of massacre, murder, rape are never used. These are excesses. Um, or, you know, yes, unfortunate, but, but Danikin is doing his best to control them. Or, or they're simply denied. Or it's the fault of the Jews themselves. So one embedded officer journalist, he talks about how this is the Jews' fault because of their nervous panicking, fanning the flames. And also, and also, Jewish representatives are often told that you know this is Jews. Jews must stop war profiteering. They must they must make clearer declarations of loyalty to the whites and um, disassociate themselves more strongly from the Bolsheviks. And you know, Jewish protestations that we're actually all small businessmen. We really don't want communism. Uh, and it just sort of waved waved away. Um, uh, and and it's shameful, and this goes all the way to the top. So you've got Churchill dodging questions in the House of Commons, simply denying that massacres are happening, sending these very token telegrams to his commanders in Russia, saying, "Do get such and such a white general to 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 restrain his troops, because it makes it hard for me here um, maintaining support." Support for support for the cause when these nasty rumours are getting through. What what was Churchill's formal role? Well, he doesn't join the war cabinet till right the end of nineteen eighteen, so he's not in. He's not sort of at the top table when the decision is made to go into 
Russia. Um, but from when he does join the war cabinet at the end of the year, he he becomes the intervention's cheerleader and chief proponent. He does not come out of it well, does he? He does not come out of it at all well. Uh, he carries on supporting the intervention long after it becomes obvious that it's going to fail. I mean, quite irrationally. And uniquely amongst the politicians involved, he carries on supporting it right to the end of his life. You know, he carries on um, saying that, you know, it could have worked uh, if only the political will had been there, that the whites were a good cause. You know, Denikin was a good man. Kolchak was a good man. And, you know, he... I mean, Andrew Roberts, for example, defends him on this, saying, you know, the Bolsheviks, the Bol you know, the Bolsheviks were this evil regime, it would have been worth overthrowing. And that, of course, is quite true. And, you know, Stalinism was beyond the imagination of even the most jingoistic pro-interventionist at the time. You know, nobody nobody conceived of the Holodomor or the Gulag. But the fact is that the whites were a bad cause and they were inept. You know, they were they were they they weren't going to win they they were hopeless they didn't have a political program they were divided they um they they were reactionary they're extremely corrupt um and that was realized by the non ideological interventionists on the ground straight away so most of these middle ranking officers they 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 were just there for the they they carried gone signed up for russia just for the promotion points they weren't they 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 didn't care about the politics one way or another and they saw and you see it in their diaries straight away that these allies these these white russian allies are hopeless um but none of that when that got reported back when the more cynical reports got reported back to london to the war office churchill simply ignored them ignored them. He only listened to what he wanted to hear. And in addition to the pogroms, there's a there's appalling casualty rate among, we've alluded to it, civilians of all kinds, non-combatants, women, children, small businessmen, obviously, starvation, famine coming in. Did, did the intervention benefit anybody? The one win out of the intervention was independence for Estonia, and Latvia. So we supported the new Estonian and Latvian governments um, from quite early on. And though they they though they, they, they had their own forces and it wasn't large numbers, we were sort of useful and I think probably helped tip the balance. So particularly the Navy. So there's a naval squadron in the Baltics and it bombards uh, red troops where it can get at them and they've got diplomatic support and radio operators and um there's a tank unit is sent to the white russian army in the baltics small tank unit that um, joins in the march on on petrograd which of course fails but and also i mean famously alexander um you know later alexander of tunis He's a young, you know, officer in the Irish Guards at the time, and he's actually given charge of something called the Landosphere, which was a um, it was a it was a force put together by the Baltic barons, you know, the German-speaking landowners, and that fights the Reds um, and the the borders of Est Estonia and Latvia successfully for quite a while. And he gets on very well with the Baltic barons, Alexander, because he's you know, he's from this similar sort of ethnic tension infused sort of big house, boggy acres, mm -hmm. um, Irish, Anglo-Irish background himself. And he loves them and they have a, you know, he loves the fighting and, and he's a, you know, he's a boyish man. He loves adventure. And he even sort of toys with the idea of some buying some land um, and, you know, setting himself up there um, as, as a landowner himself. Um, does it make you think about subsequent interventions? The, the, I mean, the, do, do you think interventions anywhere work? Well, when when I was writing this, of course, um, was at the same time that we were pulling out of Afghanistan, yeah. and it was extraordinary watching all those all those pictures of you know people desperately clinging on to the um clinging on to aeroplanes, you know, as they took off from 
Kabul airport and, you know, and, the, and these sort of frantic crowds in the airport because it, it's exactly matched descriptions, last day descriptions from Novorossiysk and Russian ports. So, and uh, in, interviewed in, in, in later life, American veterans often compared the intervention to Vietnam as well, you know, a sort of a, a pointless war which America should never have got into, didn't know what it was doing. Um, and, and and that's yeah. Now you can definitely see the the, the intervention to Russia as a as a blueprint for sort of failed failed liberal interventions to come. And I mean, it, and, and the clash as well between our white Russian allies with with our white Russian allies is 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 very familiar too. So you know, we we think that. We think that they are reactionary and 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 corrupt and disorganized. They think that we are ignorant, condescending, naive, and everybody's right. <laughs> we are indeed ignorant, condescending, and naive. You know, we go in with this feeling that, I mean, particularly once Germany is beaten, that you know, top nation, world's world's superpower um you know we've dealt with the germans we can sweep away this this bolshevik rabble of sort of you know peasants with pitchforks no trouble and you know we quickly realize that that we're in you know above our gumboots that this is russia's this enormous country it's extremely complex we don't understand what's going on um and that we're not there in nearly large enough numbers to make any difference and you know even you know, at the at the beginning of the intervention in in early nineteen eighteen, it would have been possible to march on Moscow and take over in Moscow, give, given the commitment, given enough troops. But at that stage, we were still fighting Germany, so there weren't enough troops. And you know, as as all the diarists acknowledge, even the ones who are about bit sort of wistful that we didn't do this, you know, what would we have done when we got there? That was another question. Um, and it's exactly, of course, the question that you know the Americans didn't answer to themselves when they marched on Baghdad or, or us as well indeed there's, there's a irony also that it plays into contemporary Russian uh, Putin ideas about the West always wanting to be carving up Russia um, I mean here here you have a vivid description in your book of how the West did attempt to carve up Russia and interfere? Well, we didn't. Um, we wanted a new regime in Russia. Uh, we didn't intend... But Russian, Russian propagandists, so Soviet propagandists, presented it as a colonial war. It wasn't a colonial war in the sense we had no intention of actually annexing Russian territory or permanently occupying any part of Russia. We did want a regime change. Um, and we did use some techniques of colonial war. So it was sort of, you know chucking out local leaders when they didn't suit us, raising local levies and so on. Um, but it's um it but it played into that on in the in the during the Cold War, left-wing Western historians presented it as um the intervention as something which sort of poisoned Soviet Western relations right from the beginning and made the Soviet regime more oppressive than it would otherwise have been. There's this sort of poison pill inserted into the Soviet Union at its very birth. Now, I think that's totally disingenuous because, you know, Lenin and Trotsky used savage repression right from the start, political repression. You know, ends justified means as far as they were concerned. And, and the Soviet Union right from the start was, you know, explicitly publicly dedicated to worldwide revolution. You know, it was never going to be an easy <laughs> diplomatic partner. Yeah. But what the, the, the argument... What does hold water is the idea that the intervention actually damaged the democracies because it radicalised, it destabilised France and Germany in particular. You've got all these quite Bolshevised um, radical sailors sort of coming back, coming, coming home to France, briefly imprisoned, amnestied, entering French politics, leading, leading the French Communist Party. Um, and you've got in Germany, you've got the Freikorps coming home, who are these uh, sort of very, very brutalized volunteer militias who were in the Baltics up until sort of 
autumn of 1919, um, basically just fighting for the sake of it, sort of nihilists rampaging around, looting, raping, for, for the sake of it, with no particular political end in view. They felt that, you know, that the new Germany, the new Weimar Germany, Republican Germany simply wasn't their country. And they were led by this rogue, rogue German general called, called Goltz, von der Goltz, who dreamt of, of, um, of, of rebuilding the German Empire from the Baltics. So, so you've got this, and then of course it feed, the, the failure of the intervention, this humiliating flop that it was. It feeds into isolationism in the states, and in Britain it damages Churchill's reputation. It's another of it's another of Churchill's you know irresponsible military adventures like the Dardanelles, and so it it contributes to him losing his seat in the nineteen twenty two elections. Um, and it means he's he, he's his credibility is damaged. It makes it easier to disbelieve his warnings about Hitler later on. So it does have damaging long term effects for sure. Um, I think we should draw that draw it a close. Um, I want to say that it is the most remarkable book which feeds so much later history and obviously to do with interventions but also the, the West's engagement with Russia. It's a fascinating book, which you somehow make into a coherent narrative. I, I've really enjoyed reading this book. It's available for £25. Um, and um, Anna, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for having me on and for your kind words. It was fun writing the book, I must say. It's a, it's a weird mixture of sort of, of, of of tragedy and horror and and comedy and sort of daring do as well. The comedy um, and daring do we, we haven't really talked about that, but it is there. Yeah, it's a it's a funny, but I mean, one the, the interventionists themselves talked about talked about comic opera a lot. You know, that was the word they used again and again. And partly they're sort of minimizing the failure. You know, just saying, oh, the whole thing was just a bit of a joke. But but it does, you know, all the sort of culture clash between the Brits and the Russians. Um, is often extremely funny and, and very familiar to anyone who's tried to do business in Russia since. <laughs> <laughs> anyone who's had stuff to do with Russia will, will, will find some of these things very familiar. Well, thank you very much indeed. Um, and uh, look forward to your next book. But meanwhile, A Nasty Little War, The West's Fight to Reverse the Russian Revolution by Anna Reid. Thank you, Anna Reid. Thank you. Thank you.